Hello, this is Christine Peterson with A Toolkit for a Better Life. In this podcast, we will focus on how our bodies and our minds work and give you various tips and tricks, tools and techniques for understanding yourself, being happier in yourself and living a better life. Every week, we will discuss different topics that might interest you and help you think differently to change the way you approach life and yourself. We talk about the little things that make a big difference. Hello, this is Christine Peterson. Today, I'm talking with Mason de Chauchot, my friend and colleague who shares many of my interests in how our minds and bodies function and how small changes can make a big difference in how we live our lives. Good to hear you again, Mason. How are you? Fine, thank you. Great Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here again. This is a really interesting topic we're going to talk about today. In fact, we're going to be discussing the power of not knowing, the difference between knowing and not knowing, why it's important, and how this relates to experience. We're also going to talk about the state of flow, what causes it, and how to create flow in your own life. So, Mason, you and I have recently been discussing this theme, and because it seems contradictory and counterintuitive, I thought it would be a great topic to explore in a podcast. Perhaps you might start by explaining what you understand by not knowing. Well, I can speak about not knowing in terms of knowledge. Knowledge refers to what we know, what we've learned, what we've understood. Not knowing is the opposite. It refers Mm -hmm. to that which is not encompassed by the domain of knowledge. Hmm. So not knowing refers to what you don't know. Ah, (laughs) No, not really. And here's the catch. Not knowing is not simply that which we don't know, because in that case, it would simply refer to knowledge which exists, but about which we're unaware. What I mean by not knowing is that it is not a domain of the mind. Aha. So you mean it's not, it doesn't refer to knowledge and it's not an attribute of mind. So how's that possible? Well, uh, you're right. I mean, it's, it seems it is, in fact, counterintuitive, isn't it? To know is to use your mind. Mm-hmm. When you know something, it's because you've learned it, uh, used it to plan, develop, frame, secure, and use. Mm. Knowledge is static. It organizes, explains, and frames life. Mm-hmm. But life always supersedes and outsmarts the mind. Mm. In an earlier podcast, we discussed the Sufi monk, uh, Gurdjieff, mm. and we discussed an exercise that, that he'd given us, where, or that, I'm sorry, the, 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 the school that he'd set up gave us, where we mm-hmm. sit in a chair and try to imagine in the most complete and intimate detail what it's going to be like to get up and walk to the nearest door. Then we actually perform that act and compare what we notice when performing it to what we'd imagined What this exercise teaches us is that the act of walking to the door always differs from that which we imagine and project with our mind. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But what does that tell us in terms of knowing and not knowing? Well, this is what we're getting at today. It illustrates how our mind separates us from the experience of life itself. 
Yeah, but it allows us to know and understand what life is all about. Yes, certainly. Within the domain of knowledge and comprehension. Mm -hmm. But it is nonetheless a step away from the experience of life itself. In its purest form, life is to be experienced. It cannot be understood through the mind. Mm -hmm. um, look, let's, okay, imagine a child coming to you and asking what love is. Mm. You could start by directing he or she to become familiar with all the works that deal with love. They're very numerous. Mm. Now, imagine the child is so diligent that it becomes familiar with literally everything you've suggested. Now, will she or he truly understand at that point what love is all about? Well, no, absolutely. Of course not. You know, without experiencing love, you can never really understand what it's about. Exactly. So to live life fully without any filter, you have to transcend the mind. Yeah, I see. But how do you do that? Do you get a lobotomy? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Let me tell you a Sufi story, which, which I think addresses the question. A Sufi master tells his gifted disciple that there's only one ordeal left for him to accomplish. And that is to sit alone at night in a shrine above a grave. Mm -hmm. The disciple, brave, decides to do that. And before morning breaks, a terrifying genie appears to him, but vowing to obey his orders and fetch anything he desires. The disciple is completely amazed. So he puts the genie to the test. Everything he asks for, the genie fetches. Uh, this would be, this, this really would appear to be a dream, a dream come true, mm -hmm. um, except that the genie confesses that he needs to continue to be occupied because otherwise he will be forced to devour the pupil. <laughs> so terrified, the disciple gives him several orders that runs as fast as he can back to his master. The master obviously was expecting this and comprehending the disciple's terror, laughs and simply asks his disciple to fetch a stepladder and give his genie the command to continue moving up and down that stepladder until he requires his services for something more specific. Brilliant. So the genie really represents, if you like, the mind. It's a metaphor mm -hmm. of the mind. Yeah. It needs to be kept occupied in a way which does not usurp the awareness or consciousness of, of the disciple. Brilliant. Very, very good. So, so now, actually, Mason, we're touching upon a topic which is of particular interest to me. Uh, as you know, I do my best work, and, and perhaps I enjoy life the most when I am in a state of flow. Yes, yes, absolutely. I know you have. We've spoken about that quite a bit, mm. um, especially in relation to awareness, mental focus, and spontaneity. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd, I'd actually like to talk about uh, the psychologist Mihai Chizek Mihai. We've spoken about him before in a previous mm -hmm. podcast. Um, now, as we said then, and I'd just like to repeat it to remind everybody, uh, his research on flow started in the 1970s, and he called it the secret to happiness. Uh, so flow is a state of optimal experience that each of us can incorporate into our everyday lives. Um, one, one is it, the flow, this fl state of flow is characterized by immense joy that makes a life worth living in that moment. It's that elusive state of absorption in a meaningful challenge or a momentary bond where your sense of time and place and even self melts away. So in the years since the 70s, researchers have gained a vast store of knowledge about what it's like to be in flow 
and how experiencing it is important for our overall mental health and well-being. And in short, we are completely absorbed in a highly rewarding activity and not in our inner monologues when we feel flow. Now, another researcher, Angelina Litvin, who is an assistant professor of communication and cognitive science, she has been studying flow for the last 10 years. And her research lab investigates what is happening in our brains when people experience flow. This is really interesting. Their goal with these studies is to better understand how the experience happens and to how to make it easier for people to feel flow and, of course, its benefits. So, uh, according to Angelina Litvin, uh, tell me, what is it like uh, to be in flow? Well, people often say flow is like being in the zone. Um, psychologists Jeanne Nakamura and, again, Chismihai described it as something more. So when people feel flow, they're in a state of intense concentration. Their thoughts are focused on an experience rather than on themselves. So they lose sense of time and they feel as if there is a merging of their actions and their awareness. They feel that they have control over the situation. And the experience is not physically or mentally taxing in any way. And most importantly, flow is what researchers called an autotelic experience. Uh, now, autotelic derives from two Greek words, autos, which is self, and telos, which is end or goal. So autotelic experiences are things that are worth doing in and of themselves, autotelos, self, end or goals. Researchers, in fact, sometimes call these intrinsically rewarding experiences. And flow experiences are intrinsically rewarding. It's ideal. And yeah. uh, what do they find causes these flow? So what they found was that it, flow occurs when a task's challenge is balanced with one's skill. So in fact, both the task challenge and the skill level have to be high. You're not going to feel flow when you're doing the dishes. Okay. So most people are highly skilled dishwashers. And washing dishes is not a very challenging task. So when do people experience flow? Well, Chizik Mihai's research in the 1970s focused on people doing tasks they enjoyed. So he studied swimmers, music composers, chess players, dancers, mountain climbers, and other athletes. And he went on to study how people can find flow in more everyday experiences. Uh, as you know, Mason, I'm an avid target shooter, and I yep. regularly feel flow when I'm practicing my shooting. Now, other people, maybe you, feel it when you're practicing yoga. Not me, unfortunately. I'm, I don't practice yoga. Or maybe by riding their bike or by cooking or going for a run. So, so long as the task's challenge is high and your skills are high, you should be able to achieve flow. Now, researchers also know that people can experience flow by using interactive media, like playing a video game. In fact, Chizik Mihai said that games are obvious flow activities and play is the flow experience par excellence. So video game developers are extremely familiar with this idea and they think hard about how to design games so that players feel flow. Yep. 
But let's go into this a little more. Why is it good to feel flow? Well, Mason, earlier I said that Chizik Mihai called flow the secret to happiness. And why is that? Well, for one thing, the experiences can help people pursue their long-term goals. This is because research shows that taking a break to do something fun can help enhance your self-control, the pursuit of goals, and your well-being. So next time you're feeling guilty for playing a video game or for cooking, just remind yourself that you're actually doing something that can help set you up for long-term success and well-being. Importantly, quality and not necessarily quantity matters. Research shows that spending a lot of time playing video games only has a very small influence on your overall well-being. So try and focus on finding games or uh, washing dishes or, cre sorry, or creating dishes, cooking, that help you feel flow rather than on spending more time playing games. Remember, it's quality and not quantity. Now, a recent study also shows that flow helps people stay resilient in the face of adversity. And part of this is because flow can help refocus your thoughts away from something stressful to something enjoyable. And in fact, studies have shown that experiencing flow can help guard against depression and burnout. This is really useful these days. There's a lot of people in depression and burnout right now. Um, re research also shows that people who experienced stronger feelings of flow had better well-being during this COVID-19 quarantine that we've had for the last two years compared to people who had weaker experiences. And this might be because feeling flow help distract them from worry. Sure. Um, now tell me, what is the brain? What's your brain doing uh, during flow? Well, researchers actually for the last 50 years have been studying flow, but only recently have they begun to understand what's going in the brain during flow. One of Angelina, Angelina Litvin's colleagues uh, a man named Rene Weber, who's a media neuroscientist, has actually proposed that flow is associated with a specific brain network configuration. Um, and supporting Weber's hypothesis, there are studies that show that the experience is associated with activity and brain structures, which are involved with feeling reward and pursuing our goals. And that might be one reason why flow feels so enjoyable and why people are so focused on tasks that make them feel flow. Research also shows that flow is associated with decreased activity in brain structures implicated in self-focus. And that might expl explain why feeling flow can help, help us dis uh, distract from worry. Yeah, definitely. What, what comes to my mind um, with regard to all of this is that years ago, Alan Watts, uh, the writer, ordained, he was an ordained minister, philosopher. Uh, we, we actually mentioned him uh, mm. in a couple of podcasts. He talked about how consciousness can be split broadly into two categories. He talked about spotlight and background consciousness. Mm. He was basically describing flow, although at that point, when he was describing it, it wasn't yet known. Uh, it, hadn't been, it hadn't been termed. Um, he was describing it with his examples of how you do something which is well-practiced uh, and how if it's very well-practiced, as you say, and it's reasonably complex, your attention then is free 
to lightly monitor a very complex activity such as dancing and driving. So you have spotlight consciousness, mm -hmm. which allows you to really monitor and direct your attention. And then you have this background consciousness, which comes from something, uh, an ability you have, which is well-practiced, which uh, in a sense contributes to the flow itself. Mm -hmm. That's That really makes sense to me. So what about you, Mason? Do you have any specific flow experience that you would like to share with us? Yeah. Um, I've had several experiences of flow, but perhaps the most intense one and one which might illustrate the best uh, how the mind can be transcended, at, but at the same time, there's an awareness of what's going on, uh, happened uh, a long, long time ago, uh, early on in an ashram uh, during my uh, teacher training. Mm -hmm. um, I went there and uh, I met with people who were uh, senior members of the uh, yogi I was going to work with, and um, they kept on talking about how they hoped that during this session, uh, we were all going to be experiencing and have the privilege of experiencing Shaktipat. Mm -hmm. I said, Shaktipat? Hey, that's great. What is that? I said, well, that's energetic transmission. Oh, oh you right. Energetic transmission? Well, that sounds great. Uh, what is that? They said, well, look, you, that's the way he teaches. I said, what do you mean? That's the way you teach? He teaches. I said, well, uh, how will I know if it's even happening? They said, you'll know if it's happening. Oh, let me, let us tell you that you'll know. So uh, what happened was we were about halfway into the month that I was spending there. And uh, every evening we'd have uh, satsang where we'd sit together and share. And uh, Yogi Amrit Desai would come out. Uh, mm -hmm. He was the one who was heading this. And uh, we would share with him and so on. And at one point, one evening, um, he was sitting as usual on his dais. And he had us do some reading exercises, pranayama. And he had us go into camel pose and do kalpalbati, which mm -hmm. is a very powerful abdominal breathing practice. And I realized that basically this was going to sort of put us into a hyperventilation high. And sure enough, um, after a while, uh, although I was certainly keeping it under control, I heard people around me beginning to roll away, to, to laugh, to cry. Uh, I kind of opened my eyes and saw people starting to dance and I thought well okay maybe this is what's what all about maybe this is Shaktipat but it ain't happening to me and I you know I'm not going to lie to myself so finally that session ended uh, I was a bit disappointed but that was it um, we went through the closing ceremony and I went up to my room which at that time happened to be um, a room at the, at the top of the ashram it was sort of an mm -hmm. attic room so I was alone um, and I went to bed, uh, knowing I'd have to get up at 6.30 in the morning to continue my yoga training. Well, uh, here's what happened. Uh, I remembered well because I looked at the watch, 3.15 in the morning. I wake up and I'm on fire. <laughs> I've got, <laughs> it's going through my meridians, through my nadis, as they say in yoga. Um, I had this, this feeling of incredible, intense shooting fire going through uh, various, all my limbs and, and coming out and I needed to get up. And I thought to myself, well, I, do, I didn't even think I felt I, I, I just want to go into yoga postures. And the whole point of, of this yoga training was to achieve posture flow. Mm -hmm. They called it even at the time, 
posture flow. Hmm. Well, I, I got out of bed in the dark and I started going into yoga postures, totally automatic, totally conducted wow. by all this fire going through my veins. And there I was in absolute flow. Because what was interesting is that it was as Alan Watts was describing it. On the one hand, my body was doing something which needed no prompting and demanded no thought whatsoever. It was completely automatic and driven by this physical sensation of ah, wanting to stretch, wanting to move. But my mind was there overseeing it. And at one point, my mind was saying, well, um, Mason, fine. If this is that genuine, you're probably going to go into postures you've never gone in before. So at one point, I was, I was actually standing on my head, um, but well-balanced. And, and my mind was saying, yeah, but you, you know you can do that. But at the same time, my conscience, my, my mind, my overseeing mind was saying, well, it's pretty interesting because, you know, it is somewhere like three o'clock in the morning. There's some furniture in this room. You're not going to really hurt yourself, but you wouldn't normally be doing this. And this is a phenomenon which uh, is overtaking you completely. So finally, the, the feeling, the flow dissipates. And I feel like, ah, I'm going to go back to bed. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, um, right. Uh, I, I've been on the floor for, what, 15, 20 minutes maybe? Uh, look at my watch, it's a little past six o'clock. I was, I was on the floor for almost three hours. Wow. So that's, uh, that's another thing that, that I realize has uh, is, is been since described because it's been thoroughly researched, as you know, because you've looked at it um, and, in flow. You do lose yeah. your sense of time completely. So uh, there, that's, that really is the experience I wanted to share with you. Wow. That's, that's really, really interesting. It's quite remarkable, actually. Um, yeah, and there's just also this fact, and I, I recognize it for myself, this fact of just losing, losing time, losing the sense of time and being totally focused on something. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a really, ex a very, very good il illustration of what flow can feel like and, and what it's about. Yeah, and, and I'm thinking now, returning to the topic of the day, right, which is the power of not knowing. Uh, how do we connect this? What's important here is to understand that if we only live from the standpoint of knowledge, uh, we're not actually going to grow. Hmm. So why is that? Because knowledge, which is really a domain of the mind only, is mm -hmm. fixed. It's limited and static. Mm. If we only work with knowledge, there'll be no room for novelty or creative innovation and growth, which really transcends what we know. Yeah, that's fair enough. So what do you feel is the takeaway from all this? I think that the single most important element here is, is that flow uh, uh, and flow consciousness is perhaps the epitome of human experience. Hmm. Um, being, being in flow is creative, it's pleasurable, it's spontaneous, and it's innovative. That is a heck of a takeaway. Hmm. It does beg the question, however, as to how does one achieve this state? What would you yeah. say? Well, we know that it arises out of practice. And they say that practice makes perfect. But I would rather say that practice leads to mastery. Because when one is doing something complex, which is well-practiced, there arises this feeling of peace and comfort, which allows the exercise to be truly enjoyable. So uh, would you say that that state of peace and enjoyable, sort of enjoyable comfort, really, 
is a form of, of what I would call meditative awareness. Yeah, I think you could say that. But I don't want to assign any particularly spiritual connotation to this. I think it's simply an experience which transcends the mind's effort to control something. Um, and I think certain activities can serve this better than others. Uh, dancing, for example. Yeah, and, and how about bicycle riding? Ah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, riding a bicycle is a great example. I mean, that's something you can learn, but not with the mind. A bit like love. <laughs> uh, once it's been learned and the body is, body is comfortable and skilled at doing it, then your consciousness remains free and open. Yep. Okay. Then let's go out and ride our bicycles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much for the podcast today, Mason. That was a really wonderful podcast on an extremely interesting topic. I think so. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Christine. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. You've been listening to A Toolkit for a Better Life, produced by Christine Peterson. For more information and details on how to contact us, please see the podcast description.